Well, if you would remain standing for the reading of God's Word, it's a pleasure to uh, have Reverend Mike Glodo back in the pulpit. As we continue to look at a series of metaphors the Scriptures use for the church, we read today from 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 4 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. May God add his blessing to the reading of this word. Will you pray with me? We pray, O Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your law, that we might treasure these things up in our hearts to become not merely hearers of this word, but doers as well. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I have a friend named Jeff during our Detroit years. He was a co-worker. And he loved to drive, well, he didn't love the drive, but he loved the end of the drive to the low country of South Carolina where he had an ancestral home on the water. He would get in his car as early as he could on the day he was leaving, say a Thursday for a long weekend or a Friday if he had Mondays off. And he would drive 10 hours to the coast of South Carolina. And he had it calculated to make his trip go faster. There was a Kentucky Fried Chicken in West Virginia halfway there. And so the first half of the trip would be spent thinking about that Kentucky Fried Chicken when he would get there about 9 o'clock at night. And then that would sustain him through the rest of his trip. On one such trip, he did his first five hours as he had planned He saw in this small town in West Virginia the distant glowing bucket. And as he pulled in right on schedule and walked to the door, he placed his order. And the teenage girl behind the counter said, Well, sir, we've got the green beans and the mashed potatoes. We also have the biscuits. We just don't have the chicken. And so he said, Well, I know you're probably preparing to close and You don't have any cooked right now, so I'll be glad to wait while you cook up my chicken. And she said, sir, you don't understand, we don't have any chicken. He said, well, I'll wait while you go over across the street to the grocery store, 
and get some chicken and bring it back, and then you can cook it for me. She said, sir, I'm sorry, that grocery store is closed. He said, ma'am, it says out there on that bucket that you are Kentucky Fried Chicken, and you're telling me you don't have chicken. She said, yes, sir, we have everything else but the chicken. He says, ma'am, why do you exist? If you don't have a chicken, you don't have a right to be here. Now, he confessed his sins. Uh, She gave him a look like, I'm just 18 years old and getting minimum wage. Please talk to the manager. And he found his way finally, somehow, some way, to a meal and uh, his uh, home on the lake. But the question is this. If Kentucky Fried Chicken doesn't have chicken, what reason does it have for existing? Now, it would be wonderful if it was a church's fried chicken and we could talk about the church and its chicken. But the point is still the same. Is there something without which the church doesn't have a reason to exist? That it doesn't have a right to claim to be a church? Is there a mission that is the church's mission without which it is no longer a church? I suggest to you Peter says there is. Peter says the church has a mission. It doesn't exist for itself, but exists to demonstrate or proclaim the excellencies of God. Peter tells us exactly how the church is to go about that mission to bring glory to God. In these verses from 1 Peter, we'll find Peter's explanation for us, but also God's mission for us. That God has laid the foundation of an eternal dwelling place in the death and resurrection of His Son. And because we are part of that eternal dwelling place, our whole purpose in life is to bring glory to God as His church. That's the church's mission. Not simply to bring glory to God, but to bring glory to God as His church because we are a priesthood with a purpose. I'd like us to look at how Peter explains that, first of all, by explaining how he explains to us how it was or what it is we are. What it is we are. We see this in the opening verses. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. See, here is a metaphorical description of the people of God. We are all living stones, and we are being built up into a spiritual house. And uh, it's a bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? A living stone. We normally don't think of stones as something being alive, but we're living stones in contrast to a, a, a stone temple, a literal stone temple. That is, God dwells not in a building made with hands, as Paul says in Acts chapter 17 at Mars Hill, but rather He dwells among a people that He refers to here through Peter as a spiritual house. Now the word house here, that word house is used to describe temples. A temple is a house for God, and uh, we are that house, but we are a spiritual house, not a stone house. And so what Peter is laying out here is that God has a temple on earth today. 
It's not a stone temple in Jerusalem, but rather it is a living temple of living stones wherever the Spirit gathers people together in Christ's name, who is the living stone. Uh, You probably were taught, if you were raised in the church, you were taught as a child that the church is not a building, but it is a people. I have to tell you, I was struck. I was back in Detroit just about three or four weeks ago, and I was with a pastor friend who had once been in youth group when I was a youth leader, made me feel a little old, but I'm very proud of this young man. And he had meticulously studied the history of the Presbyterian Church in Detroit, which once had a great and glorious uh, heritage. And as we drove from downtown Detroit along Lake Sinclair up to Harrison Township, where he pastors, as we passed Presbyterian Church after Presbyterian Church, which was now empty and shuttered, he told me their stories. And finally, we came to a great and glorious church right on Lake St. Clair, on the National Register of Historic Places. A carillion and an organ of renown, a, a, great, a place highly in demand as a wedding venue. And he named all of the important people that were members there from industrialists of a hundred years ago up to the present day. He said to me, and yet the gospel has not been preached from that pulpit in 30 years. And it's a reminder, it's a reminder to all of us that we are what we are because the Spirit of God dwells among us uh, for a, a, a body of living stones gathered in an open field to have the Spirit is more than a host of dead hearts gathered inside a glorious building. We are the stones of God's temple. And what what do temples do? Well, in the ancient world, temples were where the the God of the people dwelt. And as, as temples go, the church of Jesus Christ is not glorious, outwardly speaking. In fact, we are usually at our worst when we are the most glorious from man's point of view. Because when we seek the glory which is from below, we distract attention from the glorious God who is our heritage. Remember Moses, uh, after Israel had sinned by making the golden calf, Moses pled with God to forgive Israel's sins. And God said he would relent from punishment and that they would go on to the promised land, but God himself would not go with them. He would send his angel before them. And Moses stopped and said, that's not enough, God. That to go to the promised land and not have you is to not have the promise, you see. The presence of God among us is our boast. It is our treasure. And uh, when we looked at Psalm 48 a few months ago, uh, we saw this, that great is the Lord and greatly will be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. What makes the church great is it's got a great God. God is our boast. God is our confidence because we have God's presence. Not as a glorious stone building like the Temple of Solomon or the, the, even the larger, more glorious, from an earthly point of view, the Temple of Herod that we have the temple of God's Spirit, the glory cloud which is upon us. And so that means when we come to Him as living stones, 
we come as living beings because He is a living God. He is not a God of dead things, but He is a God who makes dead things live. And so we are living stones, and so we come to worship Him as a holy priesthood. Uh, It means, uh, therefore, that when we come to worship Him, we should be mindful of our holiness. As we are led in prayer by the elders each week, we're reminded that uh, before God's law, we are sinners. And that we must seek God's pardon, which He has provided through His Son. Holiness is important for priests who want to minister to the God who has chosen them as His priest. And we offer spiritual sacrifices. We don't lay bulls and goats and, and, and wine and, 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 and uh, grain upon the altar and burn it. But rather we lay ourselves upon the altar as uh, living sacrifices, as Paul said in Romans 12, because we're priests in God's house. You know, in the ancient world, there's only a select category of people. The, only the elite got to be priests. And even during the late medieval ages of the time of Luther and Calvin, only those who were specially designated got full and free access to God. But God's people are all priests, according to Peter's description here. We all have access to God. And even as Zach mentioned, how this body encourages one another, lifts one another up, supports one another, it doesn't depend upon a professional clergyman to be the living temple of the Holy Spirit. But rather, everyone is a priest in God's house, the priesthood of every believer. And so this is who we are. But how did we get there? Peter answers that. You come to him a living stone rejected by men. So the stone that was rejected, we're then told in verse 8, uh, verse 6, that it is now the cornerstone of this spiritual house. Because you find in verse 6 a quotation from Isaiah chapter 28. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. That God's temple is built upon a cornerstone that was rejected, and we know that is Jesus Christ Himself. Verse 7 quotes Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And verse 8 quotes Isaiah 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. What's going on here with this bundle of Old Testament quotations and Peter's description of the living stone or the cornerstone of our temple being rejected? Well, uh, these Old Testament texts warned God's covenant people not to depend upon themselves. Isaiah 28 speaks of a covenant of death, which was basically a covenant of self-reliance. But God would send His servant to be a cornerstone upon which they would stumble. And so also Psalm 118 describes the king of Israel who is beset on every side by enemies, but he gains the victory even though he was rejected by the builders. And we see this most clearly coming together in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because in all three of those Gospels, when Jesus finally comes to the temple in Jerusalem, He meets with, first of all, praise in a parade. We celebrate that on Palm Sunday. But in 
Five short days he is rejected, he is arrested, he suffers, he's crucified and buried. And before that all happened, Jesus described to them a parable. He presented to them a parable. He said there was a vineyard that was rented out to some stewards, some tenants. And that vineyard produced fruit, but when it came time to pay tribute to the owner, they wouldn't do it. And he sent his servants to collect the rent, if you will, but they wouldn't do it. And finally, he sent his son, and they said, if we kill the son, the vineyard will be ours. And Jesus, in one of the Gospels, asked the crowd, what should be done to that kind of people? And the crowd yells out, let the wretches be put to a wretched end. But you see, Jesus was telling that parable about himself. The Lord of the temple was coming to the temple. And the stewards of the temple rejected him. The the religious leaders of Israel, while the poor and the outcast, the blind and the leper and the demon-possessed, and all those were celebrating and receiving Jesus, those who had something to lose, those who had job security in the temple, rejected the very one for whom the temple was built. Why did they do that? Well... Uh, to use, again, a Luther saying I mentioned to you last time I was with you, they were theologians of glory rather than theologians of the cross. They didn't understand that that the kingdom of God comes by sacrifice, that the kingdom of God comes by cross rather than sword. And they sought outward glory over God's glory. And Jesus said in response to the crowd's reaction, He said this, the vineyard will be taken away and given to those who will produce fruit. And so it was a decisive moment in redemptive history when the dwelling of God on earth was handed from the religious leaders of national Israel to the Jewish followers of Jesus who would welcome a host of Gentiles into the presence of God. And so the temple of God on earth is the church of Jesus Christ, a spiritual house for God made up of living stones. What did it take? How did we become part of this house? The rejection of the cornerstone. The crucifixion. The death of Jesus Christ. And we're told in verse 7 that the honor, the privilege of being living stones in God's house is for those who believe. You see, believing in Jesus strips us of everything that we might boast about. It strips us of everything to which we might claim privilege or power or glory as human beings count glory. And it requires us to come to the cross of Christ with empty hands, as it were. That we are a society built upon the servant death of God's servant son. And that makes a certain kind of people, or it's supposed to make a certain kind of people. A people who seek the good of others above themselves. A people who display repentance, sorrow for sins against God and one another. Uh, Sorrow and zeal for remedying those sins. A desire to love one another and serve one another. To be priests, not just to God, but to be friends to one another. This is what the gospel offers each and every one of us. 
a place of privilege as a living stone in God's house if we will lay aside every earthly boast and accept the sacrificial death of God's Son. Because the kingdom of God doesn't come through sword. It comes through cross. If you want to boil it down to one very simple lifelong lesson, it's this. It's always cross before crown. That we don't see the kingdom of God established on earth by might or by power, as Zechariah said, but by the Spirit of God drawing people to God Himself through Christ's atoning work. So this is who we are. This is how we got there. Well, then, what's our mission? What are our marching orders in light of all this? Well, we find them in verses 9 through 10. We find God's mission is to bring glory to God as His royal priesthood. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Now, that is a quote directly out of Exodus 19, words which God spoke to Old Testament Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. And Peter doesn't even blink. There's not even a comma in the Greek. To call the followers of Jesus Christ, elect exiles, citizens of God's kingdom, living scattered throughout the nations, he doesn't even hesitate to apply the label that was applied to God's covenant people in the Old Testament to followers of Christ today. I've mentioned this before, but there is a description of the Reformed view of things called replacement theology, that the church replaces Israel. That is a scurrilous label. Because... We do not believe in replacement theology. We believe that the church of Jesus Christ is the flowering and the blossoming of God's promise to Israel. That our heirs in the faith were those Jewish disciples of Jesus who withstood all the persecution, the rejection, the marginalization, the apostles, and all those who were mentioned in the Gospels and the book of Acts. Our Jewish forefathers and foremothers in the faith who now have seen the promises to Israel come true. We are the fulfillment of all that God had dreamed of for Israel because Israel's mission was to be a light to the nations so that nations would come to God's mountain. And Israel's mission was only a result of the promise God made to Abraham that the nations would be blessed through Abraham. If Abraham had, could, could have looked forward and seen today, he would have said, that's exactly what God promised. As Old Testament Israel, believing Israel, could have looked forward to today and seen, they would have seen, this is God's destiny for us, that the nations would know our God through us. Now, once in a while, I'm asked what I do for a living. Uh, Tony Campolo, the uh, uh, sociologist and apologist and preacher, often known, he, he shares that um, when he is on an airplane and the person next to him asks what he does for a living, he said if he feels like talking, he says, I'm a sociologist. And people find that very interesting. They want to know more. But if he's tired and he wants to be left alone, he just says, I'm a Baptist evangelist. And... <laughs> And nobody says another word to him. Well, when somebody asks me what I do for a living, sometimes I'll say, I'm a seminary professor. And they always say, well, that's interesting. And that's the end of the conversation. 
But sometimes I'll say, I'm a minister. Well, if I say that, the very next question always is, where's your church? And I have to say, well, uh, I don't have one. But uh, (laughs) because I feel kind of deficient as a minister without a I mean, I know that, and you know that it's a legitimate calling for a minister to be a seminary professor, but not everybody sees it that way. Well, think of it this way. If we as the church of Jesus Christ are a holy priesthood, who's our congregation? Because priests minister to the Lord, but then there's somebody down the food chain that they minister to as well. Israel was to be a nation. They were a nation of priests, and we are called by that very same name. To whom do we minister? Well, it's the very same answer as Israel's. We minister to the nations. We are God's priests to administer God's blessings to the nations by proclaiming the excellencies of Him who brought us out of darkness into His marvelous light. I was in uh, Ottawa, Illinois, on the beautiful Illinois River, uh, late 1980s. I was speaking at a church. And there was a lunch that I, at which I was supposed to speak, and the lunch was at the Ottawa Yacht Club. Now, now if you know the Midwest, you know there's a place called Paris, Indiana, and uh, other similar oxymorons. Uh, yacht, the Ottawa Yacht Club seemed a little bit um, of an overreach to me. I asked the man who was driving me there, I said, so tell me about the Yacht Club. He said, well, it's been there for about 50 years, if I remember right. I said, so uh, are there yachts there? And he said, well, no, no, there are no yachts there. There haven't been any yachts there for years. I said, so what do you do at the yacht club? Well, uh, we have uh, meetings once a year to elect officers. Okay, what else do you do? Well, we have a great kitchen there and a good cook and You can go there in the evenings and on weekends. There's a great brunch on Sundays. And sometimes we rent the building out to the Chamber of Commerce and other groups so they can have their meetings there. Once in a while, a wedding. And he went down the list, and and he went down the list. I said, so, but no yachts. No, no yachts. And it struck me that was a perfect description of many churches. We elect officers, eat a lot. Rent our building out, get together. But you see, a church without a mission is like a yacht club without yachts. Like a Kentucky Fried Chicken without chicken. And while there are uh, bad directions uh, we can go with this notion, um, as long as we follow faithfully God's biblical mission, we can say this, that the church without a mission is not a church. That the church is not just on mission, but the church itself is God's mission to the world. A friend of mine who was pastor in St. Pete for years, he was talking, um, years after he had left St. Pete, he was talking to um, a couple who had been chairman of the missions committee at his church for a long time. Uh, 
They were good, faithful workers, heads of the missions committee. And that church had given a lot of money and supported a lot of missionaries. And uh, he was talking, my pastor friend was talking to this couple and said, tell me how things are going down there. And, and the, the wife said, well, you know, the, the, the neighborhood's really changed. And uh, schools have kind of declined. And it's just, it's just the crime is up. He says, it's just not the, the best place to live anymore. And my friend Bill, who's always thinking about God's mission, says, well, it sounds to me like a mission field. And their response was chilling to him. They said, we would like our mission field over there, not right here. But you see, there is a tendency we have to think about missions as a way to have myopia about our mission. When we can point to what we do other places, sometimes it's like farsightedness. It makes us blind to what's happening close up. This is a great time of year for the mission of the church. There will be people who will come to a church who might not normally come and who will sit through some person in a suit talking uh, for 30 to 33 minutes uh, about spiritual matters. And it's a good time of year to be renewed once again in thinking about God's mission, that our whole purpose, the only reason we exist, is to make the God who lives in us look great. Because we were once not a people, but now we're God's people. And once we hadn't received any mercy from God, but now we have received mercy as Zach prayed earlier, that once we begin to comprehend what it is that God has shown us His kindness in Christ, we are overwhelmed. But we must be overwhelmed to the point that we must insist that others hear as well. So we've seen what we are. We are a temple of the Spirit, living stones, not dead stones, because our cornerstone lives. And the reason He lives is because God raised Him from the dead, after he had been crucified and rejected. He was rejected because he was not a king of this world's order, but he was a king after God's own heart. And because of that, we have been brought in to this temple by his sacrifice. And therefore, God has given us a mission to tell the nations and to tell our own place, our own community, about the excellencies of God. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for calling us out of darkness. As the hymn says, for I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Lord, for anyone who is seeing the light in their own darkness, Lord, draw them to yourself today through that rejected one, so that even as they put down all their pride, you would help them to embrace their calling as a priest to you and a follower of Jesus Christ. Thank you for supplying Christ the King with a full measure of the Spirit and the testimony of your Word to proclaim Christ's kingship here in Vero Beach. And may you continue to empower, encourage, challenge, exhort, and strengthen our witness as priests with a purpose 
For we pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.